Hello, everybody, and welcome to the third episode of The Search for Growth. Uh, this is the new name for the podcast. We decided that uh, this week. <laughs> um, and to give you some context, we are just two guys on the search for professional and personal growth. Each week, Chris Gibson, the lovely gentleman I have in front of me, and myself, Alfie Marsh, are going to discuss frameworks, principles, and strategies for success in life and business. Chris is the founder of Wavelength, a bootstrap edtech startup, and myself, Alfie Marsh, is the head of go-to-market at Spendesk, a venture-backed fintech startup. And with that being said, let's get into the episode. So Chris, how are you doing this fine Tuesday? We're recording this. Pretty good. It's uh, My car got broken into last night, but it got fixed very easily. So that was, it was a short little blip. Now we're back. <laughs> So what's the lesson of that then in San Francisco? <laughs> you have to pay your dues at some point. It hasn't happened in six years. So <laughs> I feel grateful that it's been fixed already. And as you said to me just before we got into the pod, if you are in San Francisco and do have this, does have this happening to you, we've got a, a great window. We, we, got, guy. <laughs> we got a window guy. So just hit me up. Um, uh, cool. Good, good work with that intro. That's uh first time we've done that. We need a little bit of music going. I think we need like a theme tune and uh, get the energy pumping before we roll into it. Yeah. Uh, so last episode, we, we got some good customer feedback. Um, we found that there was too much backstory, too few takeaways. We're not, we don't necessarily wrap up the takeaways as well as we could. And these takeaways aren't fully explored. Uh, sometimes we'd like go from one topic to another. Um, Alfie talked a lot, and so trying to split conversation a bit more. I think both of us are different in how we converse, and we both need to push ourselves to uh, be the opposite. And then there were some technical challenges, so we added a technical checklist. Have some, you got your laptop on charge right now? I, <laughs> yes. yes I have. have I got mine? Yes. <laughs> uh, some great things is like most of last week was unscripted. So like we are able to just riff on topics, which is good. Um, we just need to have um, more concrete takeaways. Audio is way better. And it's good to have situations in which things don't go as well so that we can put in place uh, barriers so they don't happen in the future. Um, so since then, we have like a starting checklist. We, we came up with a name. We have a website, thesearchforgrowth.com. It'll like link you to all the different uh, podcast platforms, our newsletter, uh, our social handles. Um, the, the most important thing, though, is we have an email, feedback at thesearchforgrowth.com, where we are uh, just getting emails with customer feedback. So if you have thoughts about what topics we should be talking about or something as simple as... Uh, Chris's hair was out of place, I, whatever it is, like we, we appreciate that feedback and we'll note it and continue improving this pod. Hell yeah. I love it. Why, why do we choose the search for growth? Uh, it's like one of those things that we both, uh, I think decide future endeavors based on is, is like the capacity for it to be a growing opportunity. And I think both of us have personal uh, growth that we work towards and also professional. Um, and then growth obviously is like such a startup thing. So it, it kind of encompasses our similarities and also the topics that we want to be talking about. Yeah. Couldn't agree more, obviously, because we chose the name. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think it's a bad name, shoot us an email. <laughs> yeah. Give us some inspiration and uh, tell us a new one. All right. I had, I had, I've had a lot of fun in the last couple of episodes. You know, we got, we shipped the MVP, the minimal, minimum viable product, and uh, we got it out to our friends and family for some quick feedback, and and we're putting that into action. So, um, it's been fun. So, Chris, what are we going to go through this week? Uh, books. We, uh, Alfie and I both read a lot. I try to read about forty books a year, and the books that I read are like business. I really like fantasy and science fiction and then Buddhism books. Uh, and I find these books from podcasts and friends and smart people. And for me, the value of a book is like someone has put so much time and energy into developing this content 
so that the density of information to words is very, very high. Um, and Alfie and I like similar books. Yeah, I think what's interesting offline when we're talking about uh, the books we read, a lot of them overlap, a lot of them don't. Um, I think books, it's just like a book club where starting um, a conversation, taking the learnings from the book and the applications that we've then had in real life is obviously something that you don't necessarily get from a book itself. So hopefully some of the uh, takeaways that we took, um, or Chris took, because we're going to cover his book first, um, and the applications will be somewhat relevant. Uh, and then we'll summarize those at the end for everybody as well. Cool. Uh, so the book that I want to talk about is called The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness by Morgan Housel. Have you heard of this book, Alfie? I have indeed. And I've seen him uh, interviewed on many podcasts. That's actually how I came across this book. But uh, it's on my Kindle list, <laughs> unread <laughs> as with <laughs> many of the books I have on that list. Yeah. Um, I chose this book because I think the number of takeaways to page ratio is very, very high. It's a 210 page book with 20 chapters that has very prescriptive um, feedback on how to think about money. Money is one of those things that I think about regularly. Um, I, I think I'm always kind of like paranoid that um, things will go wrong or I'm not going to be able to support my family, but I also want to live a, um, generous and, uh, happy life. So balancing frugality mindset and, and, uh, like living in the moment, uh, is important to me. And this book, I think distills a lot of those thoughts in good, uh, small chapters. All right, let's uh, let's get stuck into the meat of it then. Um, yeah, how do you want how do you want to do this? You've um, you've gone through some of the key takeaways, some of the chapters. What's the best way for us to uh, tackle this book? I think we'll start with just by doing some of the top takeaways, and then we can dive into each of them, and then summarize at the end. How's okay, let's do it. Cool. So there are twenty chapters. Um, but the chapters that I found most compelling is like one, your experience is small. So your personal money experiences, how you've dealt with money is in the grand scheme of all money, very small. Um, compounding is super important. And the more time you have in the market, the better it is. You should be optimistic about the future, but paranoid that past success does not equal future returns. You can be wrong most of the time, but if you hit it out of the park once in a while, that can drive returns. Very simple power law dynamics. Freedom of time is the most important thing to uh, think about in terms of wealth. Do you have ownership over your calendar? Don't be a perfectionist. Sometimes rules that might not be totally rational uh, are, if they are reasonable, it, that is good enough. And then just don't take financial cues from people not in your position. Um, also, the book is here. <laughs> if you want to see the proof uh, you've actually read it. <laughs> yes, you can. You can look at the dog-eared sections. I've, I've read this book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I guess the first takeaway is no one's crazy. Like your personal experiences with money make up maybe like such zero 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 one percent of what's happened in the world, but maybe eighty percent of how you think the world works. But what what do you mean by no one's crazy? Uh people who make that that's the title of the chapter. People who make financial decisions are basing their financial decisions on their perspective and you might have a very different perspective from them and their their behavior just might be rational to their experience mm. um, but but the perspective being from an outsider is they've made this decision that seems like a crazy one and that i would never have done that's really 
you know, courageous, but to the other person, it might've been super rational based on their experience. That's what you're saying. Yeah, totally. Um, like my, my wife and I, we come from similar class backgrounds. Um, but the way our families handle money is totally different. Um, and that's one of the challenges of our, uh, relationships is just trying to figure out how as a, a, a unit, do we combine these two separate ways of, of upbringing regarding money so that we're making the best financial decisions for, for both of us. Mm. So how, how do each of you handle money differently? So like, I am just like frugal to a fault. Like after that Appalachian trail, I got rid of all my possessions, only had 200 items would spend it, it, my mindset is like, I, I'm so happy just living in a tent. Why do I need anything? <laughs> and uh, K Katie is, um, is like, if I want to get a coffee or I, I want the something like that's going to make me happy. And like, we should get things that may, that improve our lives. And that has, that's totally true. I, I think there's a happy medium between, um, not purchasing anything and like purchasing the correct things. Mm. It's quite interesting. Cause I like, going to that. So, you know, what someone else you might find crazy, someone else finds normal. It's like, yeah. How do you, how do you manage your finances as a, as a married couple? Not just because like what you're, what you're explaining there is more how individually do you spend your own money or what's your own approach to spending money? And then there's also the question of like, how do you handle money together? And I, I, I find that really interesting because I think same, like the, the whole point of this podcast, like the search for growth that I'm super interested in then how other people do things and other couples. And that's a topic that often people are actually quite coy about discussing. Um, but you know, me and Adri are pretty, uh, pretty frank about it. We have our own personal accounts. Um, and then we have a joint account. We've got a budget, um, for all of our like household expenses. And then we calculate based on our salaries who the percentage, um, Know, who earns what percentage of total household income out of our family and then we cut our joint expenses by that so you know you pay your certain percentages and all of those bills come out of one joint account and then basically everything outside of that is uh, like non-essential stuff and that's like we can choose to do that so everything else will we'll split you know 50 50 where if we go to a restaurant and it's outside that budget we'll split that 50 50 and, and so on and so forth and where does the podcast equipment come in <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's fully on my, uh, <laughs> on my expenses, <laughs> but this is the thing, like going back to what you're saying with Katie, like, um, I'd say like, I'm, I can be fairly stingy sometimes, but I, I for example, I don't buy clothes very often and I'm, oh. I, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm to like the same minimalist, um, extent that you might be, but I will, I will purchase clothes may minimum probably like once a year if not every couple of years like i honestly have clothes and still wear them i, I realize i've been uni wearing them back in college like over over a decade ago <laughs> i should probably change them but um so when i do but when i do go in then i'll basically go in on a mission in a shop and then you know drop a bunch of cash and then that's me done for a while but that's just a very different like take on it and i think uh Adri's a lot more comfortable if she could have 500 dollars in her bank account drop everything and then travel around the world. Whereas that would give me like severe anxiety. <laughs> so, you know, like what she, what to that point, what, what she finds normal, I find a bit crazy and what she sees as, you know, a bit obsessive, I probably see as normal. Yeah. Also just thinking about how this, uh, this takeaway that your experiences don't translate to the reality or everyone's reality is like you, you look at how, venture capital right now, a lot of younger investors have only invested in a zero interest rate environment. And this new higher interest rate situation means that there's a totally different way of evaluating companies and what to look for that the whole growth at all costs is there's now is a cost to growth. So, um, how do these people, are these people that may, may have done really, really well in this zero interest rate environment. Can they repeat that success mm -hmm. in a new uh, interest rate environment? I don't know. Well, that, 
the example, like in a, in a SaaS company, like a software as a service company, like the, the idea is you're, when you're not selling something upfront and then taking like a hundred grand in one go for like the entirety of the product, right? You're basically selling a subscription that the customer pays on like a monthly yeah. quarter yearly basis. And so with that model, there's, you know, in, if you have like every month, you know, from January through to December, let's say you acquire a customer in January and that costs you $10,000 to acquire a customer, but they pay you a thousand dollars per month in terms of like your timeline in the first month, you have a big sunk cost because it's that you go negative 10 grand. And then every month after you add a grand. So, you, you know, in February, you're minus nine grand in, in March you're minus eight grand all the way up until the 10th month where you break even, and then you're into a lot of profit. And that is really important from like a business model perspective, because if you actually want to grow massively, you have to have the cash to basically go in the hole. Like if you want to have a hundred customers, you've got to have a hundred times that 10 K. And that means that you're going to be in the hole for that amount, um, right up front. And it's only once you get past the break, even that you start getting profitable. So that business model, it does, it does work if you can get to profitability over time and you can prove that the customers are going to stay. Um, but if you're not in that business world, like you see the headlines of all these companies that like now starting to like get to IPO or they're, they're, they're going through SPACs, um, without having like profit. And if you're not in that business model environment, that may seem like crazy. Like how can you, how can investors invest hundreds of millions into business that doesn't make any money and, um, completely like that, that sounds ludicrous but when you then understand the business model again going back to your point about your 0.1 percent of business decisions uh with the rationality of the business model it's actually quite you know smart and actually you don't look at profitability you look at unit economics how much does it acquire to cost one customer and what's how long does it take to have that customer pay me back is it 10 months is it six months is it two years um yeah. I mean, that just, just, just thinking of like an example of what seems crazy to one person is actually completely normal to another. And, you know, going back to your interest rate environment, that's, it's interesting because that obviously changes the context completely. Now, uh, the growth where there was a, a focus on growth, um, and getting rapid growth and getting market share. Now it is actually more of a focus to profitability. And so the, the goal of those unit economics changes. Totally. Um, so basically the point is, your experience is not uh, the average experience and it the amount of exposure you have to money um, decisions is very small given the corpus of money decisions historically. Um, I think let's go to the next one. Um, and this is a pretty easy, easy one. Compounding is important. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 80, did you know 81.5 billion? And I, these numbers are based on this book, so I don't know how it's changed since then, but 81.5 billion of Buffett's net worth came after his 65th birthday. And what is his net worth? Oh, I, I don't have that number right now. But the point is like, I think at this, at this time when it was like 84.5 when this was written. So yeah. the point is Buffett made a ton of money after 65 and... <laughs> Uh, which is mind boggling. It also, for me, I don't know how you feel, but I always look at all these people with all this money and all the things that they've done. And I never, I don't necessarily do a cohort analysis of based on like age. Like obviously there's some mm. crazy standout people like a Zuckerberg who write he, early 20s it has so much money and has built a crazy company. But uh, a lot of the people that we see in who've done impressive things, it's because of they've just stuck at it for a long period of time and they're a lot older than us. And yeah. we're young thirties. That's what they say also, you know, what you, uh, what you can achieve, you often overestimate what you can achieve in a year and underestimate what you can achieve in a decade. And I think that ultimately, the compounding idea there uh, is relevant because we, why do we overestimate what we can achieve in a year? Well, it's because we think that we can grow 20% in a year and maybe it's only 5%. And then we underestimate what we can achieve in a decade because 
we we kind of see that as like a linear growth five percent every year but actually it's compounded and so five percent every year is actually quite significant at the end of 10 years um, i think it's wild i don't know if you do this exercise ever but you think about where you were a year or five years or 10 years ago and how much has changed it's significant dude all the time i mean there's before i moved to the states there's no way i would have thought i was going to be in the states with a pandemic and you know, new job, new mic, all these different things. No, it's completely different. But the, the, so going, going back to the, the chapter title, like, you know, confounding, compounding. <clears throat> the one, the one problem with the compounding thing is it, I think it's kind of, it's almost so common. It risks it's on being trite now that it's yeah. so obvious that compound interest and compounding growth is great. Yeah, we get that. But how do you get 10% growth every year? You know, yes, if you look at the S&P 500 and you invest in an index tracker, just from like a monetary investment perspective, okay, like you can get that um, get that growth. But again, A, people don't tend to invest 500 bucks every week for the rest of their life. And they especially don't try and do it when the market goes down. They try and time it. And so, you know, how do you do that in reality is very different to um, just, you know, knowing knowing that you need to do it. And same thing in business, like, in in the value you have this concept of like the triple triple growth double double and that you know you 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 get to your your hundred thousand uh you know mrr you know three hundred thousand mrr you triple you keep going keep going you know triple 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 double double and at some point you're going to get to a hundred million revenue and an over a billion dollar valuation but <clears throat> three to go three hundred percent every year and then two hundred percent every year is really freaking hard and um it's it's not so much that people don't know that that's like powerful, but it's how do you actually do that? I think going to like what unites us in terms of our, um, I guess like principles about life and the growth mindset is it's just get one percent better every day. Like don't try yeah. to have a step function increase from you know zero to ten. Just focus on every day being that one percent better. Read a new book, take something interesting, speak with a new person. Perhaps every time, every interaction is quite marginal. But over time, that compounds, and suddenly, you know, when you're Warren Buffett and you hit 65, then <laughs> that really pays off and really exponentially. And so, effectively, when is that kind of the breakout on the on the curve yeah. going to occur? I think that, like, your question, how do you achieve that compounding, is uh, goes into the next chapter, <laughs> which is getting wealthy versus staying wealthy. Um, Good investing is not necessarily about making good decisions. It's about consistently not screwing up. Mm. So uh, there are like three main takeaways from this chapter. One, be financially unbreakable. Be able to stick around to work wonders. Two, planning is important, but assume things won't go to plan. And three, best situation is being optimistic about the future and paranoid about getting to the future is the best mindset. You totally so, have to say those more slowly. Okay. <laughs> um, one, be financially unbreakable. So be able to st stick around to work wonders. So, okay. So durability. Yes. Okay. Two, planning is important, but assume that things won't go to plan, which is kind of similar to one. Okay. But in, in both situations, we're talking about be prepared for worst case scenarios such that you have some cash balance, et cetera, that can that you don't need to sell your stocks in a downturn mm. because selling them at a downturn during the downturn is when you will lose money. And okay, then three so, is, okay. No, I was just going to summarize, you know, one is being durable, two is um, preparation and three is what? It's just, it is good to be optimistic about the future, but also assume that if you're not actively moving forward, that things will go wrong. You just need to, in, instead of being complacent about your financial future, it is good to continue to push forward. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, but what's the point that they're trying to make? The, their point is uh, past successes doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have future results. And... Okay. 
but so be optimistic that you can have these successes but just be conscious that they might not actually come to fruition and, and have a preparation around yeah like happens. you you think about it and in in the book they talk about michael moritz at sequoia and he talks about being worried and just like being paranoid about doing well in the future yeah sequoia the way vc firms work is they have a fund they invest in some companies that fu fund does well or doesn't do well. They raise some more money based on that other fund's performance and they invest again. That second fund, if they have, have not done well, if, if they're not being smart about their investments, that second fund has no relation to that first fund other yeah. than maybe other than better deal flow. So I think what I, what I'm taking away from this this chapter, I think the first thing you actually said was the most relevant, which is good investing is not necessarily about making good decisions. It's about consistently not screwing up. I yeah. li literally had a um, conversation with my coach today and I was talking about um, effectively how I'm like a hundred percent or nothing kind of person. And when I get really into a project, I can let other priorities go. So for example, like I'm not eating as healthy as I should. I'm not exercising as much as I should, but I'm doing uh, a ton of other projects and I like, execute well on them. Um, and she referred to the book Atomic Habits, which we probably should yeah. do like a whole podcast on in itself. But um, effectively, it's about how do you create like an environment for you to succeed? Going back to the point, good investing is not necessarily about making good decisions, about not screwing up. She said to me, stop trying to make things easy. Um, just make sure that they're not hard. And what she was trying to say there is basically make it so that it's harder to screw up and focus about de-risking the downside so that you have an asymmetric positive upside. When you were talking about the VCs, um, like the VC game is super interesting because to me it's very asymmetric results because you have uncapped positive returns, potential positive returns, because a company can grow potentially infinitely. And you have a fixed amount of money that you can lose because you're not yep. leveraged. Um, and so that just on like infinite up, <laughs> infinite possible returns and a finite uh, loss, which is just a hundred percent loss of the, the money you put in is super asymmetric. And so that's like a, a great game to play. Where I've seen this same um, thing happen is in the hedge fund industry, where if you're a trader and you, let's say you've got a hundred grand and you're trading, you're, you're going to win or lose your own money. Um, and when you lose a, a trade, you lose your money. Whereas in a hedge fund, you're basically let, you're leveraged but it's asymmetric leverage. And what I mean by that is as a hedge fund manager, you may personally own a hundred grand and you, you, you trade on that, but you go out and you raise a hundred million, a hundred million dollar fund, and then you trade that, that fund. And the way you make money as a hedge fund manager is saying, I'm going to charge 2% just for management fees every year. So nice 2 million in the bank, happy days. And then you're going to take the 20% carry. It's the two and 20 rule. Uh, VCs have like a, a, VCs have a very similar model. <clears throat> like partners in a VC is a very similar model. So if that hundred million dollar fund goes up by 10% uh, just for ease of mass, um, it goes up by 10 million and they take 20%. And so they take 2 million on that. The, 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 so that's like the upside, but the asymmetric downside is, well, if the fund loses 10% and it goes to 90 million, that actual hedge fund manager, it's not out of his pocket. So it was client's pocket. He's not paying back the customer if it goes down 10%. And so that's like the ultimate asymmetric leverage. Actually, it depends. So, some, some funds uh, will pay if, if the, they can't return the fund, um, they will pay the management feedback. Yeah, but that's still management fee is um, it's you're giving back money that you've already earned rather than losing money. And in addition, that's also the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Um, but I think going going back to the point is how can you make the 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 risk of screwing up? How can you de-risk the risk of screwing up and search for those ways of creating wealth? VCs do it, hedge funds do it, 
how could how does it but how does this apply to an individual or maybe a founder in their company well i don't think i think you're kind of conflating two things like one there's the parallel dynamics which we can chat about and how to make uh you, you don't have to be right most of the time you have to be right in a minority of times in order to make that asymmetric upside um the point of this chapter though is survival and i uh yes fun dynamics like if it goes to if it goes down then they 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 have capped losses but the point of this chapter is to put in place uh barriers or amount of um uh yeah barriers to, so that when bad things happen you are financially okay okay and do they give some good examples of of uh what those would be yeah the, the whole um sequoia being paranoid i i, I don't have the, the okay. examples off the bat <laughs> <of my> <laughs> yeah uh, Okay, let's go on to the next one. Um, so the next one is what you were talking about. It's a power law. Okay. Um, so you can be wrong half the time and still make a fortune. And the point of that, like, there was a study uh, between uh, 2004 and 2014 of VC fund performance. 65% uh, of companies within a fund lost money. 2.5% 10 to 20 X 1% 20 X and half of 1% returned 20 X or more, wow. which is crazy. Like, this is, this and, is over what period you said in 2014. Uh, this is just a study between, uh, 2004 and 2014. Okay. That's super interesting. And I think I, I, I had on the all in pod, they were talking about this and it was it was looking at uh vcs return profiles across time similar thing but not across like different vcs but just across time periods as like an aggregate and effectively you know x amount of percent of their returns all came from the final years of the uh like the the tech boom before it crashed in 2001 and this idea that that power law all your returns are going to come in that kind of last little burst and if you get out too early, you can, you know, lose like 50% of the average turns over, over an entire decade. So that's yeah. a tough game. You've got to time that, time that right. Well, I don't know if you've heard about Sequoia's changed its fund structure a bit such that they can, um, stay, uh, invested in their public companies after an IPO. There's this big question of like when to return assets mm. to the LPs and some people say like upon a liquidity event, you should uh, return assets immediately. And other people th are saying they should keep it more because at least historically before this year, uh, a lot of these tech stocks just had explosive, had a ton more growth in the public markets after an IPO. Mm. And if you return that back to the uh, investors, like they wouldn't see that. Um, return. This is why the uh, the exposure to opportunity is such an important concept. You know, we we spoke about this a little bit in last week's episode about the different personalities and you know our strengths and weaknesses, or how do we like to socialize versus you know you know the other introverted, extroverted, and that's like one of the reasons that I love going to. That's why I love meeting people and going to network events or just trying to always have an introduction and, and meet someone new. And because every individual interaction might not equate to much, but because of that power law, you can just meet one person. And it completely change your life. So I think, and you know, VCs are similar in that, that way. That's why, you know, they, they want to get into a deal because the, the risk of the biggest risk is not of failing. It's of not capitalizing the opportunity uh you know potentially presented to you so how so, do you actually capitalize on that your point there i've been having a lot of chats with people in the venture 
industry recently. And one of the main takeaways of like why venture is so hard is a lot of people in venture feel like they need to be on at all times, like in sales mode, mm. like their polished self, because they never know when that founder or that LP or that connection that could be life-changing will be sitting across from them at the table or at a conference. And it uh, can be draining for a lot of people to um, feel like they have to always be in like selling that themselves and their brand all the time. Yeah. And I think it goes to like the, the range of behaviors, right? There's the extreme, you either don't do it at all or you're obsessed about it or you're somewhere in a healthy middle of, well, let's do it just enough that, you know, I'm still increasing my exposure to opportunity at the, at the amount that it doesn't drain me of energy. I think that's where you have to find the balance. Yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to that the power law. So we, we spoke about that last week, so that we won't spend too much time on that. Um, so what was the next one? freedom and it's controlling your time is the highest dividend money pays. I, uh, I feel like this just goes back to Tim Ferriss's The 4-Hour Workweek. Have you read that book? Uh, I've dabbled. It's, uh, dabbled. It's, it's a big one, but no, I've not, not completed it. Yeah, so I read that many years ago, and it was uh, impactful in terms of how I think about time and um, how I think about career choices. One, like there's so many stresses of being a founder and also by being a founder, you have the capacity to structure your schedule in the way that is most beneficial to you and your company. And there are other roles, whether it's being in venture or working at another st startup where you lose control of that, that time. And um, you're, you're kind of just at somebody's beck and call. Like as a founder, you're you have way more stresses. You are on call 24 seven. Maybe you don't take a vacation for years. Um, so there's like a balance. You're kind of trading the ability to set your schedule with other concerns. But um, like right now I'm, I'm in a great spot. I'm like doing some contracting. I'm doing this podcast with you, doing some side projects and that freedom to make my own schedule just feels amazing. Um, and I think a lot of people are not, uh, have always just set their schedule based on other be behaviors or other people's needs. And so basically the point is the highest form of wealth is being able to do what you want today. Like if you wake up and you can make a decision that this is what you want to do, that is what Morgan Housel argues is like the highest form of wealth. Yeah. You know, the old story about the, like the rich banker <clears throat> goes on holiday in a Caribbean Island and uh, meets a fisherman drinking a beer by the, mm. uh, by the, you know, this, uh, this, this, this story. No, I, I can see where it's going, but go, go for it. <laughs> well, in the spirit of long story short, as <laughs> a part of the feedback from last week, um, Effectively, you know, a rich guy, he's made a ton of money, he's grinding, he's hustling, and now he's out on his yacht and he's got his, you know, going out fishing and he meets this other fisherman drinking a beer. And basically, they get in a conversation. He's like, Oh, why are you, you know, fishing? Well, I've got this fish and I'm going to take it to my family and feed us for the day. And he's like, Well, if you get two fish, then you can actually eat one, sell the other one, make more money. He's like, Oh, okay, what well, I'll do with that money. And this cycle goes on and on and on and on. Yep. And then at the end of the story, he basically is like, okay, you know, now I'm super rich. I've got all this fish and I've got, you know, factories all around the world and blah, blah, blah. Now, what am I going to do with that? Well, you can retire and sit on the beach all day and fish and drink a beer. He's like, well, <laughs> I'm doing that already. Uh, I think most people probably had some form of that story already. But um, I thought about that story because it sounds really nice. Makes a good LinkedIn post. Um, you know but how they, to make good LinkedIn posts. <laughs> it's been uh, been getting back at it after mm -hmm. a, a bit of a year off, but I thought about that, and I don't necessarily. I think it's it's a glor that's a, like a glorification, saying that you know you have everything that you want. Um, that fisherman has everything he wants, or you know, compared to that the rich guy, because there is a difference, and that is freedom of time. The the guy that's fishing on um, 
uh, you know, out in the Caribbean, he has to do that. And he hasn't got any other choice not to. So his only choice is to be content with doing that. Whereas the other guy, he's working and he's, he's built the wealth and he can go on holiday and do that. But if he wakes up the next day, he can go and do something else. And so I think there is still some value in creating wealth, not necessarily monetary wealth, but like you say, freedom of, of time. And most freedom of time comes from monetary wealth. But I would say like your, your story for precisely that reason means that that person doesn't have freedom. If, if that person has to fish every day, then that he doesn't have the capacity to change his schedule. Well, that's my point. I'm saying, so, so I, that's my point is like, that is not a, 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 there's no freedom there. That's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> I, I thought you were trying to, to frame the story in such a way that the person fishing had the capacity to set his own schedule. I mean, that's the, that's how people frame the story. And that's like mm. the, 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 the lesson that people try and say that story and trying to get across and saying, Oh, the rich man's wasting his life mm. because you're going to chase life to basically that you can have every day. And I think it's elegant in terms of, I think it's elegant if you take away from that story, um, you know, the more money you have, okay, you've got a big house, but at the end of the day, all you need is like a, a, a bathroom to shower in, a living room to watch TV in, and a kitchen to eat some food in or something like that, right? I mean, how, how grand or grandiose that gets over time doesn't really matter. Um, so, you know, be content with what you've got instead of chasing more because what you may be chasing is already there. I get it's very, it's very beautiful, and I think there's a lot of value, and I'm not being sarcastic, even though that did sound quite sarcastic. Um, I think it, it, there is a lot of value in that. But I do think based on what you're saying about this freedom, the, the more of that story is the fisherman that has to fish every day is not free. Um, and his only choice is to be happy with fishing. And if he is, then great. He's got a great life because he's out in the sun and he's fishing and he's seeing his family and so on. But the moment he wants to do something else, go somewhere else on holiday, not have to fish for a day, go read a book for a week without having to do that. He can't because he doesn't have the ability to do so. Yeah. Yeah. I also would say that this whole banker situation is probably has its own capitalist flaws. And there's probably like I, one thing that I, I think the hedonic treadmill is something that's, I grapple with. And do you want to explain um, what that actually means? So the hedonic treadmill is just like, you never, whenever you get to your goal, it's never enough. And there is, People have lifestyle creep, like people go work and then they get a raise and then they buy a bigger apartment and then they spend more. And so they have to keep like the amount it's, it's never enough. And I am trying to figure out ways so that I can set reasonable, like financial goals that are and like life goals so that as my earning potential goes up or my wealth goes up, I'm not constantly seeking something is wanting. I, I don't want to just keep looking for more and more and more because at some point, like enough is enough. <laughs> well, I think this goes back to your point about, um, you know, making what was the exact words you use? Um, about the risk it's not you know it's about not screwing up um yes. and i think that when you um when you when you earn more money it's quite common that you in you augment your quality of life in terms of what you're spending money on how you're purchasing quality of your clothes the restaurants you go to are fancier and that is risky um, because if you then have to suddenly you lose that job or you lose that money, then you've got a much more expensive lifestyle to cater for. So if I was to take that advice from this book, um, I would say every time you do have an increase in wealth, don't change your lifestyle because that is a way to, you know, de-risk the, the problems of things changing. And I think it will just probably make you, uh, you know, appreciate the stuff that you have got. And it's, um, you're a lot more freer to take more risks and, and, uh, you're not, you're not burdened to the, the wealth that you're creating. Yeah. So actually on that, and it's a chapter that I didn't, wasn't going to chat about, but 
they talk about in this book how the quickest way to lose money is to spend money. And typically the people with the fast, like flashiest items aren't necessarily the, the wealthiest because it, they're spending dollars on things. There's, there are tons of instances of people frugally spent uh, spending just enough to make ends meet and amassing, uh, like, dollars for them and their progeny. And, um, that is cool. Um, well, this I is think also that, the sexiness of like being a bootstrap founder, because yeah. you get to, as a bootstrap, I mean, you can talk to this more than I can, cause you're, you've actually been there, done it, got the t-shirt, but when you're bootstrapping, you own your business, you own the, all of the equity. And, um, you know, maybe you don't have the potential to, or it, it's very hard to scale up to a hundred million dollars in revenue as a bootstrap company without some sort of financial support elsewhere. Um, but would you rather be, you know, have a tiny percentage of a billion dollar company or have a huge chunk of a $30 million company, you know, net net after all of that, you might end up actually being richer being the bootstrap founder. Um, and you know, you're the bootstrap founders, I think are notorious for, not being in the news, not being in the tech crunch headlines that, you know, it's not, it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not big zeros on the ends of, uh, you know, numbers and everything. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. You know, what is the, it's not about what you see. It's, it's, what does that life support you? Do you have the totally. freedom of time? And I, cause another thing, you know, you're talking about freedom of time. It's not just time. It's freedom of choice. Um, with, with the moment you take money, from a, a VC, you are beholden to their expectations to a certain degree. Of course, it's your company yeah. and you can tell them to, you know, F off if you like, but at the it, end of the day, you know, it depends not... on their governance. <laughs> well, well, yes, but you know, it's very true. But I think to like the, the general, the general gist of it is they have expectations and you will have pressure to meet those expectations. And if you don't, it's going to be harder to raise the next round. So whether they have direct control of your business or not, it's, it's going to make your life harder if you don't, uh, somewhat cater to their, to their, 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 you know, input. Um, yeah. and that's not fun necessarily. You know, if you're not aligned, that can be a real painful journey. Yeah. So I bootstrapped wavelength for a couple of reasons. One, like the freedom of it, as you were talking about, to uh, the ed tech space is like pretty having tons and tons of money in that industry isn't going to necessarily help grow. Um, but three, it's uh, we were talking earlier about decreasing risk of ruin and having that um, that bandwidth to ride out storms. And when you take venture capital, you are one on a rocket ship, you're kind of on taking a lottery ticket and they really want it to go really, really big or fail pretty quickly so that yeah, it's a zero resources. One. It's, it's success or failure. Yeah. So as a founder, like you, you may be that, that unicorn, but you also may not. <laughs> and for many founders, you're, you'll, you'll have some good things. You'll like be able to take a bigger salary. You'll be able to say you started a venture back business. You'll have tons of contacts, but for many people, it uh, doesn't work out like that. And the company shutters after a bit. Mm. And so they're just trade-offs in terms of how you build businesses. All right. What else have we got here? Um, I think we yeah. covered a tons, tons of stuff. Are there any other key things uh, that you took away from this book that the audience should be taken away too. One is like re being reasonable over rational and, uh, right, explain what that means first. Yeah. So when you're making financial decisions or you have a heuristic for your retirement plan or how you invest in stocks or, or whatnot, it's always better to be mostly reasonable than coldly rational. And, that is can I can I interject? I want yes. I want to I want to get crystal clear on what that means. For you, you know, to me, reasonable and rational sound similar. So what does reasonable mean? What's the difference between reasonable and coldly rational? Yeah, so reasonable means that it might be right 80 to 90% of the time, but you're not getting you're not perfect at some strategy. There's some some like 
let's take stock picking. Most people agree that taking just like you should buy the S&P, a couple index funds, and like that is going to re return better than individual stock picking. You're not going to get, you're not going to be better than institutional traders. Most, most people won't be. So you might as well just buy the S&P. Uh, and I think that's, that, that, that's, that's an example of being reasonable. Uh, no, that's a, that's a example of being rational. Right. So okay. rational is you are, you have some perfect strategy being reasonable. Like a lot of people want to pick stocks. They know that it makes the most sense to buy the S and P, but they still want a little bit more Apple or they want a little bit more Tesla. And it's, uh, reasonable for them to allocate some portion to other alternative strategies or for instance venture mm. most ventures aren't most venture firms underperform the s p and okay. unless you can get, be an lp in a top fund likely you're not going to be uh able to perform at such a high level as s p but maybe you really like private investments maybe you really like trying to build companies and it makes sense for you to allocate some amount of your capital to this probably on the grand scheme of things slightly underperforming asset so and, so a, a, a coldly rational decision is something that is kind of optimized for a good outcome whereas a reasonable decision is something that is not necessarily optimized for the the perfect outcome but doesn't necessarily have uh, major downsides to it, and you know why not? Yeah, and the reason you you prefer reasonable over rational is if you are just making decisions based on a rational, uh, uh, yeah. If you're making rational decisions, that means that you may not have any emotional connection to that strategy. You just know that that is the perfect strategy. And so mm. when time goes wrong, uh, when things go wrong, which inevitably they do, you may change up that your behavior away from that rational strategy that actually does more harm to your overall, uh, like investing strategy, rather than if you're reasonable, you have a ton of faith in it and you're going to invest in the long term. Like interesting. That's interesting. So uh, I had maybe from like my, a personal experience that happened recently. So Adri was, or she's got a side hustle selling bow ties for dogs. Mm -hmm. Shout out to the, the Wolf gang. I'll put the, uh, the Etsy link in the comments <laughs> for those dog lovers out there. Um, but she's basically started doing a bunch of markets. She's done the fourth one now. And it's, it's just crazy how well they're selling and it's really good feedback and whatnot. And we want to take it like up a notch and, sell more online and, and make it more professional and scalable. And the decision was, uh, should she asked me, oh, I've seen there's like, you know, Airbnb, but for kind of like office space, but there was studio space. And so she wanted to rent this studio for like 30 bucks, whatever it was an hour to do a photo shoot for the dogs. And basically in this studio, it's just a big room. And in the background is just the, like the drop downs that, you know, the backgrounds that you can take the photo in front of. And like our apartment is basically this same size of this room. And I've got all the professional equipment apart from this drop down stuff, which costs probably less than hundred bucks on Amazon to buy. So there's me, she's asking for my opinion and I'm cold. I'm probably coldly rational most of the time. And my opinion was like, it's a waste of time and a waste of money. Spend that same money on buying equipment and you can do it a thousand times. And, um, that's kind of my reaction. And then I think she was a bit disheartened by that. <laughs> and I think she was thinking more re from like the reasonable perspective. And, uh, for her, what I wasn't taking into consideration is it didn't make sense like financially to do that, but actually being in that place was going to make her happy. It was outside of where she's working and living and she can be more creative and uh, it feels like a business and she can take it more seriously. And so that's really interesting that you've kind of opened me up to that perspective because i never really thought about it from 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 that before and um yeah maybe i have to take that into into my own life yeah um and then finally the last one is uh beware of taking financial cues from people playing a different game than you are 
And I think you shouldn't be an easy way to think about this is momentum traders. So uh, like during the Yahoo craze in um, the first internet bubble, there were a lot of momentum traders that just like drove tech stocks, uh, tech stocks up and they made a ton of money doing it. And, but the way they were trading was just based on momentum. Like it, it, they were able to lock in gains based on uh, the fact that the stock was going up a bunch. And then you had a bunch of other people who were longer term investors who saw that the price go up and thought that there was some change in evaluation or this is a really hot company and they started to get into it. And um, then they bought it. And uh, because the momentum traders were were playing a totally different game. They were playing something in a very short-term time frame, and these long-term uh, investors were were looking for a longer time frame. Uh, these longer-term investors lost their shirts because they were just playing a different game. And you can talk about crypto. There's there's a bunch of um, similar situations, but basically, unless you're know someone else's financial position, f financial background, like why they're making certain decisions, be very careful about getting their financial advice. Mm. Case in point, drop out of college. I feel like that's one that's like taunted around a lot. And, uh, you know, that's all right when you've got a lot of privilege and uh, you've got a nice safety net to fall back on and a, a, a decent network or, a, a, you know, a bed to sleep in at night in your, in your family house. But if you've got different circumstances, you know, that, that college degree could open up a lot of doors. And it's one of those things. It's not just about taking investment advice and being careful with those cues from it. It's just full stop. I think advice is not something that should just be taken as is. You always have to do advice, you know, plus context equals what. And advice is very rarely given with context. In fact, it's not, if you look at how advice is distributed in books, uh, social media and snippets, maybe in books, there's probably maybe slightly more context, but a lot of the time it's not sexy to add the context and it actually detracts from the storytelling or the, the efficacy of, of delivery and the message, but it's probably the most important thing to know whether it's relevant to you or not. Um, so whenever I hear something, business decisions, you know, you, I mean, so many examples, but you're okay. You're scaling up an outbound sales team. And you've got this advice from like an inbound, you know, chief revenue officer on a subject that is maybe fairly, you know, uh, homogenous, but the context is super different. Like you just have to, you have to search for context, not advice. Totally. I think about this when I'm having conversations with people and they're telling me about their career and like how I should be thinking about my career and all of them have a different lens of uh, that I have to wait when I'm taking their, their, uh, opinions into account. Um, and that's, a, that's the same with financial decisions. Mm. Yeah. I think that's a good, I think that's a really good framework to take away. You, whenever you're asking for advice, I think you spend more time, spend more time trying to figure out why they think that advice is, is good or true rather than focusing on the details of what the advice actually is, because you can probably get 80% of the actual advice itself in a, in a few sentences. And there's more value in understanding why they said that. Yeah. Um, all right. I, well, there's quite a lot of stuff out of this book. I think I have to give it a read. <laughs> yeah. It's quick. It's only 210 pages. Oh, I, I read like it, it in like a couple of hours. Okay. Um, so again, takeaways, your, uh, Financial experience is small. Compounding and staying in the market is super important. Be optimistic about the future, but also paranoid that things might not happen. So be active about your uh, future. You can be wrong most of the time, but if you hit it out of the park once in a while, that can drive the returns. Freedom of, of time is super important. Uh, best decisions are sometimes you don't have to be perfect. Like, uh, if good enough is good enough and don't take financial 
cues from people not in your position. Love it. The, the psychology of money. Love it. Absolutely love it. Okay, so what, before we actually wrap up, there's a there's a, a couple of announcements. The first one is, as uh, Chris mentioned, in the last week we um, built a website, thesearchforgrowth.com, and on that website you can uh, a subscribe to the podcast. If you're not following uh, already on Spotify, Apple, wherever, you know, go in and actually follow and get notifications. That's one. Um, if you're not that much of a podcast listener and you've somehow just managed to get the end to the end of this hour, um, we are going to be sending uh, an email newsletter update once a week, which is going to give you, let's say, three to five clips of the key moments of every podcast um, so you can have the key takeaways without having to sit through an hour. Um, so if you like that, sign up for that. Um, you got anything else there to plug, Chris? Uh, on the website, it has links to uh, Alfie's Rocket GTM newsletter uh newsletter i have where i just send out links that i've content i've consumed both of our socials um but the most important thing is just send us feedback yes that's all we care about right now is uh this is a totally different format than the other two episodes what worked what didn't work yeah all all feedback is good feedback yeah there is no such thing as bad feedback and if there is bad feedback we'll just ignore it <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks very much everyone for another episode on the search for growth podcast see you next week for uh, episode four see ya ciao